Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, growth.church. And if you have questions, we want to answer them. So if there's questions that come up while you're reading the Bible reading plan, or maybe you're hearing us discuss different topics or different books, or just a random Bible question, we would love to take time as much as we can week over week in our podcast episodes to answer those questions. There are two ways that you can send us those questions. One is an email to the address info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct message us on the Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. I don't know why I always say the Facebook, but I do. Yeah, um, you know. But do? you can d- direct message us there. We get the questions there as well. So, all right. Well, this week we're pretty we're pretty jam packed. This this week. is a full week. I'm gonna it's go. It's been a while since we've been this full, so yeah. it's kind of fun to be able to to add a little bit new flavor to it. Well, and also to get you know some different uh, some different areas of the Bible than kind of the Old Testament history. We will still be hitting up a lot of that, but we're gonna have a couple of epistles, some Psalms for you. So it'll be great. Um, also, fair warning ahead of time. This week you will be starting Ezra. We're gonna save that for next week. What? So I know. Just kidding. So we're not gonna be. I think it's only yeah, it's only like a couple chapters, and so we're gonna do all of Ezra next week, and then the first chunk of Nehemiah as yeah, well. Yeah. So you'll get a good little taste of Nehemiah or Ezra before we actually talk about Ezra. So it's kind of a teaser, if you will. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, let's get into Chronicles. We are finishing it up this week. And is then, anybody excited about that? I because I kind of am. I do. Yeah. It's been. Doing Kings and Chronicles back to back is a little bit is a little bit much, but I do like yeah I, I I like having the contrast because Kings was so fresh in our minds and so we can see really clearly where you know where in Chronicles mm-hmm. does it deviate why is it deviating and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but anyways, the first king that we're going to meet this week is Jotham and he is the son of Uzziah. Uh, we're both we're told in both Kings and Chronicles that Jotham did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. Hey, so, good job, Jotham. Yeah, way to go. Uh, however, Chronicles tells us that the people of Judah were corrupt during this time, as opposed to Kings telling us that Jotham did not remove the high places. So we get hmm. kind of he's a good king, not necessarily a great king. There's a few different, and it, it, like his father, like Uzziah. Uzziah was also a good king, not quite reaching that, you know, that great thing. And then in Kings, the thing that's talked about is how he doesn't remove the high places, which if you if you forgot, those are areas where you would still worship Yahweh, but you're doing it outside of the altar and the temple where where it was commanded to happen. Uh, so it's not like full blown idol worship, I guess. It's, it's kind of like I don't know, it's the gateway idol. <laughs> it's the marijuana <laughs> of uh, of idol worship, I suppose is the way to put it. Uh, and then in Chronicles, we're told that the people of Judah were exceptionally corrupt. However, the king himself was he was I he was all right. So there you go. Uh, but in chapter twenty eight, we end our streak of at least pretty good kings, <laughs> and we yeah, it, it is funny how like from really you know Asa through Jotham for the most part you have. Good, not great kings. Yeah. And so, but and then we just kind of go, it goes downhill. Quickly. Yeah. Very quickly. But you also get out of this period, and not to spoil everything, you get out of this period, the two, I would argue, not in the hindsight of reading both Kings and Chronicles, I would argue the only two great kings of Judah come after all of this. And so, and that would be, we're not going to say it, but I think you know, listeners, if you've, <laughs> you know, if you've been reading. Uh, so... <laughs> Anyways, uh, Ahaz, he brings back good old idol worship, uh, and he is defeated, though not conquered, by Syria. So Syria is the country right to the north of, um, not of Judah, it's the north of Israel, and then they also came through there. Uh, constantly fighting, the Syrians were kind of a big deal. Damascus was their their great city. Um, but, you know, something's going to happen to the Syrians that's going to make another empire kind of a bigger deal on Israel's borders, but we'll talk about Interesting. that. Interesting. Yeah. Actually, we won't really talk about that this week, because that's more about the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and then I was going to say... Speaking of the northern kingdom of Israel, they also raid Judah uh, and they take some slaves. However, Chronicles gives us this interesting story about a prophet that we don't get. We don't get this in Kings. So this is the men of Israel. So this is the northern kingdom. They took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil and brought them to the... Uh, Brought them to the spoil, brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria. And he said to them, Behold, the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, and he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? 
Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berechiah, the son of... Oh, I don't even know. I'm not going to try that one. (laughs) Meshillamoth. Meshillamoth. There you go. Uh, Jehezekiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, you shall not bring these captives in here for you, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt for our guilt is already great. And there is fierce, fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives in the spoil before the princes and all the assembly and all, and the men who had been mentioned by name rose and took the captives. And with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, carrying their feeble, carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys. So they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and then they returned to Samaria. So it is interesting that I think, and I'm guilty of this as well, we tend to view nations as kind of a monolith of culture, and you don't realize that. Because the Israel... All of their kings suck. Um, they are punished by God before Judah, but there are still good people in Israel. And obviously, like, and obviously, like, you know, you know this to be true because there's prophets like Hosea and Obadiah, not Obadiah, Hosea and Amos and Jonah are all prophets of northern Israel. And we can argue about whether Jonah's really a good guy or not, but you know, he's at least better than uh <laughs> he's better than a lot of the kings of uh of Israel. And so I think it's a really cool story here that we get another prophet who's doing the work of God here, but also that some of the people of Israel are listening. And so I think sometimes we can be a little bit, we can paint with too broad of a brush, I suppose, that just like there were righteous people in Judah who were going, um, who were pursuing relationship with Yahweh, there were also still righteous people in Israel. Probably not a lot, but but there is at least some. All right. Uh, as he gets older, Ahaz eventually gets more and more hardcore with the idolatry. Um, he even goes as far as to close the temple. So he straight up just bars the temple shut. No one's allowed to go in there anymore. Um, eventually, when he dies, we are told that he is buried in Jerusalem, but not in the tombs of the kings, which that's a little flourish that Chronicles adds a lot, kind of like reminding you where people are buried. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting that mm-hmm. all of that is happening. Yeah. So after Ahaz, we get one of the greatest kings of Judah, and this is Hezekiah. Uh, And Chronicles has a ton of stuff about the reign of Hezekiah that we do not get in Kings. We're told in chapter 29 about Hezekiah reopening the temple, uh, which he does in the first month of his reign. So this is not a, you know, after years of kind of thinking about it, he's like, oh, you know what we should do? We should reopen the temple. You, You can kind of imagine Prince Hezekiah looking at what his father is doing and being disgusted by it because he he undoes most of what Ahaz did in his reign in the first month. So Hezekiah is clearly not fully supporting all of this. So reopens the temple. In chapter 30, Hezekiah removes the Passover. So he's clearly leading the people back into full worship of Yahweh alone. In chapter 31, he reorders the priests and again, showingly, showing how seriously he's taking all of this. In chapter 32, we see probably the greatest king of Assyria, he, uh, Sennacherib, invades Judah. Um, so I should say emperor of Assyria because it's the Assyrian empire, but Sennacherib is, he's one of those Kings where, um, if the Bible was never written or if Kings and Chronicles were never written, we would still know who Sennacherib is Mm -hmm. just from like history books and stuff. Uh, he invades Judah and he sends men to Jerusalem who begin to blaspheme. And they say that Hezekiah is lying when he claims that Yahweh will deliver his people. So he sends servants in and Hezekiah is telling his people, stay strong, believe, we serve Yahweh. Yahweh is going to come through for us. Um, and it, he, it's interesting because he that is the exact opposite of the trap that so many of the kings of Judah have fallen into. Because I think of uh, Jehoshaphat and a few, I can't remember the other king that we talked about last week, but the big thing was that he made um, Asa, I think it was, who he made alliances and he was trusting in other people besides the Lord. Hezekiah here is like, He's seeing the onslaught of the yeah. greatest empire of the time. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But Assyria was massive. It was absolutely the greatest power in the region, possibly the world at, at, at the time that this was happening. Um, and Hezekiah is looking into the onslaught and saying, we serve Yahweh. And he's going he's gonna to come through with us. So really cool, really cool moment for Hezekiah. Uh, but let's see how it turns out for, uh, for good old Sennacherib here. 
So in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, it says, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and the commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame on his face to his own land. And when he came to the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies and he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. Take that. Okay. So listeners, here's the deal. This is the first time in the history of our podcast I'm going to do this. A lot of times I say, hey, you should, you know, maps are cool. You should check out this map. It's going to be a good idea. You have to look up at this map to, to truly understand what has happened. It's because, required. We yeah. will not speak another word until you do it. If you do not look up this map, the podcast feed will disappear <laughs> from your phone and you will never be, you will never see us again. Uh, just kidding. But and I'll, if you really are just against looking up the map, I'll describe it to you. But here's the deal. Look up Assyrian Empire under Sennacherib and you will see that the entire region of the Middle East is ruled by Assyria. It stretches from uh, the southern tip of Egypt to the middle of modern-day Turkey, from the Mediterranean in the west, all the way to the Persian Gulf in the east. Almost the entirety, the only parts that aren't under control by the Syrians are the desert parts that suck and you don't want to live there anyway. <laughs> like it, that, that is literally the empire that they have right now. And there is one dot that is the kingdom of Judah. That is all, that, that is the only place that the Assyrians don't rule over. So... It's a, it's a miracle. Yeah, like it's you're, pretty significant. Yeah, you, this is not meant to be like Hezekiah is this great king and is a warrior who fought off the Assyrians. Like, no, this this is a clearly a miracle from God protecting yeah. His people from this massive empire. And when you look at a map, you see just how insane it is that yeah. this little holdout country in the middle of um, in the middle of Judea held out against this mighty empire. So really cool. Yeah. So look up. The Assyrian Empire under Sennacherib, you will come away being like, "Wow!" Well, can't we just put the map in the show notes? Can we? Don't we? Can't we just upload? Ah, that's PDF? a big. That's a big pro. That's a big promise. But I'll see what I can do. No promises, but it might be there. It I might. Guess. It might so. be there in the show notes. If not, you know, just hit pause. And uh, if you're listening on your phone, just you know, tab, Google that, look at it, be like, "Wow, Evan, that's a great point. That yeah. is that's a really helpful map to look at." And then you're good. <laughs> and then you can keep listening because we will know who's who looks at the map and who doesn't. So yeah, what are you gonna? I'm do? just kidding. We don't know. All right, so right after this miracle, we see Hezekiah fall into a trap that is all too familiar for many of us. Uh, he begins to see the work of God as his own accomplishments. So like we just talked about- No, Hezekiah. Yeah. Still, I would still order him among the great kings because you don't have to be perfect to be a great- I mean, Yes, Dave, you do. Yeah, David did the whole freaking Uriah the Hittite thing and he's a great <laughs> king. So, but yeah, you know, Hezekiah, he's human. He has some faults. Uh, and so Yahweh sends his wrath, but Hezekiah being a good king repents and he humbles himself before the Lord. So, yeah. Okay. Well, good job, Hezzy. Yeah. Much like, yeah. Much like David who, when confronted with the sin, repents. So does Hezekiah. Um, after the death of Hezekiah, we meet, dun, 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 Manasseh, who is just <laughs> the freaking worst. Um, yeah. Manasseh might be the worst king of both Israel and Judah. Really? He is without a doubt the worst king of Judah. Oh my God! He's just, you know, he's just the definition of child sacrificing scumbag, and it's 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 the fact that he's a child sacrificing scumbag, and that he rules for so long. So it's not like because some of the kings of Israel really sucked, but then it's like they were on the throne for like two or three years. So it's like, okay, well, how much damage can you actually do? Mass is around for a long, a long time. Uh, but then we did get, I put I put in the notes, we get this passage in Chronicles. Um, and he, it's going to ruin my image of Manasseh a little bit. So he doesn't. <laughs> and here's the thing. Just like, you know, just like how Hezekiah, he's not perfect, but he's a great king who has a, he, he has a fault. Manasseh is still a horrible king, but he has one. He has a moment. Yeah. He has one moment. You know. It's like the dot of Israel in the middle of that Assyrian <laughs> map. That's okay. It's, it's, it's the one dot that, that. Uh, Manasseh has. So. That is an apt comparison. I like it a lot. So in, <laughs> I'm just trying to bring the map back in often. So, In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, it says this, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Let's be honest. Let's stop there. That that That's enough. Like, that yeah. says enough. Surprise. 
Uh, Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again into to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Which honestly, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. Also, kudos to God. I shouldn't say kudos to God, as if God wants my kudos. Good job, God. Yeah, but here's my thing. Um, I think we can often say that God shows God shows mercy to people that we would never show mercy to. If Manasseh did that to me, I'd be like, "Yeah, have fun rotting in Babylon." You think I'm gonna? <laughs> you think I'm gonna rescue you after you've like serving Molech? Come on, but. That's not who Yahweh is. That's not who God is. He's not not us. Infinitely merciful. And, you know, I guess in that sense, thank God that he is God and not us. Agreed. Uh, Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance of the fish gate. It's a cool name. Uh, And carried (laughs) carried it around uh, Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders in the army of the armies in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain and of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay. Good job. I guess I, you know, begrudgingly, I guess. Cool. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of his uh, of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all of his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built the high places and set up uh, the ashram and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon, his son reigned in his place. All right. Reagan, uh, you're just not, there's it's no, just no grace for you. I, apparently not. Here's the, Dude, just, the end, like the end of his life. Uh, he like, came around. I mean, I don't, and granted the people didn't follow his command, right? I mean, they nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, it says, but only to the Lord, their God. Yeah. But they, it still was obedience, right? Obedience was, disobedience is disobedience. Right, not yeah. You're not called. You're not allowed. You're not. You shouldn't sacrifice outside of the place God establishes. Anyways, so disobedience is still disobedience. Um, But But dude, Manasseh had his moment, man. Like at the end of the day, like and here's the thing: I'm not saying he's a good king. I'm not saying he he should be elevated into any status. But at the end of the day, like there should be no begrudging that. I mean, we could yeah, we could theoretically take him away from like just the The absolute worst. worst to being like a bad king. It does make me. It's it's hard to reconcile this story with the story of Josiah. Where, because remember when Josiah is 18, I believe that's the age he is when they discover the law. Um, sure. The he law, was young. Yeah. yeah, he was young. The, the law is presented as something that the people were not familiar with. So I do wonder how long was this repentance of Manasseh? Because Chronicles does make it seem like it lasted through the end of his life. So was it very late in his reign? Mm-hmm. And then Ammon kind of undoes it all in a few years. Um, cause it, it doesn't seem like the type of thing where all of a sudden Manasseh has this massive change of heart and they start worshiping Yahweh again. And yet at the same time, they don't know, or they are just aren't aware of the law. So, well, but I wonder, I, and that's the thing, right? We don't know how many, at what point in his reign did he have this moment with God right? where he understood in humility, like, oh shoot, I missed it. Um, obviously my paraphrase, but, um, you know, Ammon, who we see and we'll get to in just a second. Um, I don't know if he's reign if he reigns enough to undo everything. So I, I would venture to say it was probably later in his reigning, yeah, and Manasseh's reigning that he actually had a change of heart and tried to return uh, as to to God's ways and God's will and God's law and stuff like that. But um, but like if I, so, I'm looking at it through a modern lens, right? At, mm-hmm. the, at the end of the day, like if there's people, I, I just think through the lens of like, man, if someone if someone is just the absolute freaking worst, and they have an encounter with with the truth of, of of the gospel, like I'm going to celebrate that more than I'm going to reflect on their, their badness. That's fair. Um, so, but as we're, I mean, and we're taking like a 35 million foot view <laughs> of, of Chronicles and Kings. And we're looking, how... we're looking at all the acts of Kings and we're just like, man, they're just bad people. Um, and in some respects, yes, their actions were bad. But at the end of the day, like, 
I mean, there was a couple. There, was, I can't. Remember, I can't remember the kings, man. I blend them all together. But there was a king we talked about. Like he was a good king until he had a really bad moment, <laughs> and it knocked him down a tier. Oh yeah, Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat's like that. Uzziah, like a bunch yeah, of kings so, of Judah. But, so like I would that. rather. I mean, there's part of me. It's like, man, I I almost would put him in that same group, if not like a step above, because at the end of his life, he returned to the Lord and tried to return the people to the Lord. Versus living faithfully and then turning away. You're not like, don't don't don't. The upward trajectory, in my opinion, is at the end of his life is better than the downward trajectory at the end of life. The way that, um, but that's just me. The Lord spits the lukewarm from his mouth <laughs> is the way that I spit the idea of Manasseh being a good king. <laughs> well, I, but I'm, not, I'm not making that argument. What I'm making is I'm making the argument of how you end your life is probably more important than how you live the majority of your life. That's fair. And you kind of see that with, yeah. You see and I think it. it's a gospel thing too, right? So I, I, that's why I say I look at it from a modern lens. In that time, that era, like, and you see it and you'll see it, you know, after Manasseh with his son, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to undo years of disobedience. It's hard to, it's hard to undo that. Right. Well, uh, and it does, it does make me wonder why, why is there nothing on this in Kings? Because, you know, and, and maybe- On Manasseh? Well, Manasseh- or, so, because if you read Kings and all you read was King's account of Manasseh's reign, there is no redeeming factor mm-hmm. whatsoever. Um, whereas Chronicles, it Chronicles is very interesting in the way that it treats some of the kings. Because, like we talked about with David and yeah, Solomon, it's true. it pretty much ignores the bad things yeah. that happened with David and Solomon. Um, with Asa, it focused a lot more on the negative sides of his reign. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kings really elevates Asa. If again, just re- when we first read through Kings. I put Asa in the same categories like Hezekiah and Josiah. And then after the Chronicles, I'm clearly like, okay. Oh, that's well, right. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. We're, okay. Well, we need to knock him down into good king still, but he's not a great king. And now Chronicles is also kind of giving some extra context into the reign of Manasseh where, I mean, oh man, I still might count him <laughs> as You're like, one. I don't want to do it. It's the child sacrifice. You know, it's, totally, it's really, totally. it's the Molech of it all. It's just a hard, that's a hard one to get past. But yeah, it, I guess it, it presents him as a much more fleshed out person yeah where he has he has triumphs and he also has a lot of a lot of failures so and maybe and, that, and i guess okay. that's sorry what? go ahead i was gonna let you finish I, I guess that's also the nice thing about having kings and chronicles together because yeah, you get two different it's, it's kind of the same thing i've heard people before they kind of decried that there's multiple gospels because like oh my gosh can't, why can't we just have one and it's like the like that's hmm. just the account and like no it's it's actually really great to see because matthew mark and john or I should say Matthew, Peter, and John all had different perspectives when they were with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then Luke has his own perspective of working. A and, very and detailed perspective exactly, of, of, of observation of getting, and engagement. Yeah, almost more objective in a way, but he's like working with a bunch of people, he's interviewing people. And then you have Mark who's adding on his kind of flares when he's listening to Peter describing all these things. Plus, I, I actually do think Mark was there. Um, I think he's, yeah, I I think he's the guy yeah. who uh, ran away naked when Jesus was taken from Gethsemane. But hmm. um, I don't know if I've ever thought about that. We probably talked about it really? years ago. Oh yeah, I think that's what it makes sense. It totally makes sense. Yeah, because it's it's only in Mark, and it's only it's that's yeah. right. And, and and he's not named, so to I me, haven't read Mark in a long time. So yeah, well, I'm reading Luke right now. That's why Luke's a good one. So. Anyway, all, so, all all that to say, I think having the perspectives is a healthy thing. Yeah. Well, and I, I like so it's funny because I'm like, why am I even like returning to the the Manasseh vibe as far as like, well, maybe he there should be grace, and we should give more grace because I think through a modern lens, I think through today's culture, today's era. If, if we are sitting, and I want to be very careful and very clear about this, like when we, when we are categorizing Kings, it's not a, everybody who fits this description is this way. Uh, and so like when I'm, when I'm watching Manasseh and I'm reading through Manasseh, like, yeah. And it, and it, the majority of his reign, he was the absolute freaking worst, um, child sacrifice, the way that he led God's people astray. Um, but the thing that I love the most about it is like, there's redemptive, there's a redemptive, powerful truth to Manasseh's encounter through suffering and exile, being carted off to Babylon, um, he encounters he encounters the hope of Jesus. He encounters the truth of of God, and he responds appropriately. Um, and so, like, there's part of me in my empathy towards people today is there. Sometimes can hear things we say off the cuff, and I don't ever want it to get type shattered or like stereotyped, right? Uh, because people make make mistakes all the time, you know. And child sacrifice. I mean. T- translate to modern day living, it's the abortion filter, right? And so mm-hmm. there's this tension that I want to be careful with. And so that's why all of a sudden I'm like, well, we just got to be like, Manasseh's at the end of the day, the upward trajectory is where I would rather, I would rather people today and as well as people all throughout history finish is the upward trajectory. Yeah. Recognizing the the truth of God, 
that modernizing the truth of Jesus, the gospel, I want to live that way. And so if, if that's the trajectory, then I'm more, uh, I'm more excited about that than I am about the downward. Yeah. You could be the best person in all the world, be the best preacher, the best follower of Jesus. And at the end of the, at the end of your life, you decide to walk away and say, screw it. I'm going to live to my own, my own pleasures, my own vices. That's a negative thing. And I don't want that for anybody. And so, so when I'm, so when I say I would put them in the same level, same tier, and probably even a step above is because of how they finish their life and how they respond at the end of their life. Um, because that's what probably matters most in my opinion. But yeah, it that's is. a whole, whole rant, whole side note, but I will um, say it'll be really weird if on the other side of eternity and then, cause yeah, if, if Manasseh's whole like repentance to Yahweh is genuine, he'll just be in heaven and we'll meet Manasseh. <laughs> yes. And Manasseh will be like, hey, Evan, you don't like me, huh? Yeah. I'm, I'm just kidding. Hey, let's talk about, let's talk about what you said in that podcast at one time. I don't know why that's my Manasseh voice, but it is. All I don't right. know either. Come you, on. Because you think he's the freaking worst. You think I'm the worst king? <laughs> anyway. All right. Let's, sorry. Sorry for the side note rant, but I I, I do want to be careful sometimes. Yeah, that no, I, don't, I think it's good. I don't yeah. ever want anybody to read into what we say about ancient people as if it's modernized true today. Um, we all fall short. We are all sinners saved by grace. As long as we accept Christ, we're saved by grace. Um, so don't ever, I hope you never feel condemned by anything well, and, we say. And when we're, when we are ranking Kings, we're also specifically talking about the legacies of their whole lives. Yes. Not, we're not making pronouncements on God's salvation. Yeah, it's not judgment. Yeah. yeah. We want to be careful about that too. So anyways. All right. Thank so, you, thanks for allowing me to sidestep. Yep. Yeah, you know, sometimes we haven't done one of those in a while. Maybe, maybe the listeners like it. Maybe they turned off the podcast. Who it's like, Aaron, just shut up. Um, so after Manasseh, we get to Ammon who, uh, I put, he sucks and he yep. dies after two years. <laughs> so... Uh, after Ammon, we get, I would say, for sure, the greatest king of Judah. Um, Interesting. I think I could argue that he was the greatest king ever. Um, wow. But it would be, I, I don't know if I'm, I, I don't know if I can actually commit to putting him above David, but I would say he's without a doubt the second greatest king of um, of both kings. You, you think, do you think that's a controversial opinion? No, but I think it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I... Sorry, the king is Josiah, by the yeah, way. Oh, we yeah, Josiah the, is the name. Uh, the it's name. funny. I'm reading the name, so I already know what you're talking about. But I um, I just, like, if we go back to the legacy filter, like, it's it's David's line. It's not Josiah's right. line. So, yes, David. David lived his life, made a very poor decision. But at the end of his life, he he still re- remained obedient to, to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And now his sons didn't. And... And it's, I mean, even in that own right, it's interesting to remember, like, I can do everything I can to raise my children the way they should go, but they won't always follow it because they have their own choices. I mean, the great example is Ahaz and Hezekiah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so all of that to say, like, well, and also, uh, not I think just... Josiah is a great king. Don't get me wrong. I think yeah. absolutely. I, I mean, him and Hezekiah, I, I I would agree with you, two of the greatest kings of Judah. Um, and referring to legacy, probably, they probably finished and ruled better than David overall. Uh, but I think I think what David did prior to his kingship, in my opinion, should be included in his legacy. Yeah, that's fair. And his faithfulness and, and his obedience in that filter, I think, is what puts me. I would put David just above still Josiah and Hezekiah. And like I said, but I that's just me. well, yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm not fully committed to it. It's too late. I, you just committed on the and podcast, think, and I've got people's witnesses. There you go. I'm I think without a doubt, though, Josiah is at, at the very least he is the second greatest king in the line of David, which by default would make him the second greatest king of either Israel or Judah. It's so, true. Very true. Okay, well, Chronicles does not really deviate from Kings when it when it recounts the reign of Josiah. It's actually very it's very similar. So, and if you if you don't remember, um, Josiah becomes king at eight years old. Uh, so basically, at that point, you're not even really king. You're kind of just like you're a figurehead, but yep. you're not you know you're not ruling. Um, but eventually, as he moves on, uh, the high priest rediscovers the law, and so Josiah just moves forward at a rapid pace, just completely turning the people back to Yahweh as much as he can. Um, he tear down, tear, tears down all of the high places, all of the all of those extra places. Um, it, it, his kingdom really does remind me a little bit of the post-exilic period, which we'll talk about next week. But this it's a period where the Israelites come back and there's really not that big of a struggle with idol worship anymore. Like they've kind of learned their lesson. Josiah kind of, it's, it's almost like a foreshadowing of what will eventually be. And like during the time of Christ, um, the Israelites have their own problems, obviously. And there's things that they have to work through, but 
one of those problems is not like they're not tempted by bail anymore. <laughs> like, that's, yeah, you know, hey, good for you guys. Um, so the exceptions being as far as Chronicles matching up with Kings, uh, Kings focuses a lot more on Josiah breaking down the high places while Chronicles gives us a much more detailed picture of the Passover renewal that took place under his reign. So remember Hezekiah did one of those as well. Um, that is kind of one of the markers of the great Kings, especially leading the people religiously, leading the people towards worship of Yahweh is the, is the Passover is it's the main, um, it's kind of the, that and the Day of Atonement are like the two main holy days of the Old Covenant. And so the king bringing it back is, mm-hmm. is an important thing. Uh, and then Josiah is unfortunately killed by the Egyptians in a battle. Um, and he's he's fairly young when this happens. He's not like a – he's not a teenager or anything, but he's, he's, a, he's a younger guy when this happens. So I do also think with Josiah there's a bit of like the Abraham Lincoln uh, JFK effect where hmm. – um, like with Lincoln, I think – I think he's at the worst. He's our second greatest president. I think a lot of people put him in the first place as well. Um, but I think part of part of that legacy is he was killed before having the chance to see like what was going to yeah. happen with Reconstruction, all those different things. And I think, I mean, no matter what, he would have been better than Andrew Johnson because Andrew Johnson is the Manasseh of American presidents. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is this isn't a history. This isn't a this isn't a political podcast. podcast. Well, I mean, I mean Andrew, he's been dead for like 150 years. Listen, That's if like, you want to hear more about Evan's political takes, you should follow us on the podcast. And I'm just kidding. He doesn't have another one. Breaking the president. <laughs> um, but any, anyway, so but you but we view we view Lincoln in a certain light because really he was killed before. Because before having the chance to falter, um, JFK is a little bit of the same way where there's a lot of what ifs like would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about with all the kings of Judah, not all the kings, but the good kings of Judah, they all start off pretty good and then they end poorly. Even Hezekiah, not nearly as poorly as you know the other ones, yeah. but Josiah doesn't even get the opportunity for that to happen. So it's kind of, I just thought that was interesting. That, that's what makes him number two. No, yeah. <laughs> number two. Uh, anyway, so after him, uh, we get to Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakin, and Zedekiah, who are all, they're all bad kings. Uh, they're all different levels of bad. Um, and then, yeah, the Babylonian empire takes over. So we, we recounted a lot of that in Kings. So if yeah. you want to hear about those four- Jump back to that. Yeah, Kings in particular. They're just, you know, they're just they're just not that interesting. Um, <laughs> now, I remember, I always say to pay attention, how does the author of any biblical book end? Because I think that, that gives us a lot of, that helps paint the picture of why they wrote the book. Mm-hmm. So like in Judges, I, I love that it ends with, and everyone did what they thought was right is the last line of the book. And I think that just is an encapsulation of the struggle of Israel in, in the book of Judges. Um, Kings, we talked about how it ends in this, and I, I had this epiphany after we recorded, um, but it ends in a very Orwellian fashion, which is it, in the book 1984. So spoilers for that book, but you know, it's like, what? It's like 70 years old now. Um, I've never the, read it. Oh, what? Oh, it's so good. You should read 1984 okay. and Animal Farm. I was born in, I read Animal Farm. Did you? And you didn't read 1984? Uh-huh. Oh, man. If you liked Animal Farm. You're I didn't. Like, it was a class requirement. That's oh. why I didn't. That's why I wouldn't read it in 1984. I mean, it was I a, didn't have to read it. It was a class requirement for me, but I liked it a lot. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, the, the 1984, um, it's about this guy who's understanding that he is being he's being oppressed and he's being uh, broken and ruled over. And so there's big brother is kind of like the, the ruler of this nation and he joins a resistance movement. He's fighting and throughout the book, I won't spoil all of it, but he, he is completely broken. And at the end of the book, he's no longer part of the resistance. He's just a part of the nation again. And he looks at a portrait of big brother and it's, it talks about how in his heart he loved big brother. And that's Mm -hmm. how the book ends. That's the last, the last line of the book. Um, I realized after reading through it, I think that's how Kings ends. Yeah. Because it's Jehoiakim in the courts of Babylon. And it, it's just this really weird note because all it says is the king took care of him and Jehoiakim didn't have a worry for the rest of his days. And I think that that's kind of the, the more and more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that the Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles to a certain extent are all telling the same story. And it's the story that starts when the people of Israel go to Samuel and they say, we want a king just like the other nations of the world. Yeah. And how does the book of Kings end? Well, it ends with them just like every other nation in the world. They're under the thumb of the Babylonian empire. I shouldn't say in the world, but just like every other nation in the region, they're yeah. under the thumb of the Babylonian empire. And that's how Israel is going to exist. They're going to be under the Persian empire, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and then they're going to be scattered. Um, and so I think... They wanted a king, 
and they wanted a temple and they wanted to be more like the nations around them. And they didn't, it was kind of a monkey's paw thing. They didn't realize what it was that they were asking for. And I think that's how Kings ends. Chronicles ends in a little bit of a different way. So this is the very end of these last two verses of Chronicles. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word that the Lord spoke by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Uh, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of of all his people, may the Lord God be with him. Let him go up. So Kings ends on just a downer note Mm -hmm. of just the utter defeat of not just Judah, Israel and Judah, but also of their culture and what made them separate. When Mm -hmm. God set them apart as a nation, that is all gone. Chronicles ends because it recounts the same story and it focuses more on Judah, but it recounts the same story of like starting off strong and then the, the nation just continues to devolve and eventually it's it's taken over. But Chronicles ends on this upbeat note of now it's time to come back. And part of that is is when they're written. Like it's it's pretty well assumed that Kings was written by Jeremiah in the period of the exile, whereas Chronicles is written by uh theoretically Ezra when they're coming back. So there is, there is that, there is that as well. But yeah, it's a, it's a more hopeful note. Yeah. It's not quite as much of a downer of kings. And next week we'll get talking about what I think is probably the most ignored period of Israel's history. But we'll talk more about that next week. But that is the the post-exilic period when they come back. Um, but again, that's just that's for next week. Well, let, let's t- let's talk about some epistles. Um, but before we do, listeners, we do want to say make sure to leave us a five star review if you get a chance, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are the ones that really help us out and get us out there. Spotify, boy, you're catching up. It's going to be awesome, but you guys are going to eventually pass Apple Podcasts here pretty soon. So, Aaron, what do we have to say about First Thessalonians? Well, and we're going to read First Thessalonians this week as well as Second Thessalonians. So we're going to cover those two books as well as some Woo! psalms. So, like we said earlier, it's a pretty packed week. So we're excited about being able to to mix it up a bit. Um, so, quick, uh, just a quick overview. First Thessalonians. These are two epistles. Second Thessalonians. Evan's going to cover here in a minute. Uh, these are epistles written by Paul. Uh, the speculation is he wrote it about 18 months into his stay when he first went to Corinth on his second missionary journey, uh, which is roughly 4951 AD, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. So, I, just, I do that more to give Evan a shout out because he likes the history and the timeline stuff. So. Well, yeah, I do think it's important because there is a very good chance that the letters to the Thessalonians are the earliest documents that we have in the New Testament. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, so... So, so that's about when they were written. Um, Thessalonica, a little, th- little bit about the, the city itself. Uh, it was a, uh, the ca- a capital Roman city in Macedonia. Uh, had a population, I didn't know this, about over 100,000 people, uh, which was pretty significant. More uh, than Marysville. Yeah, Marysville. If you're local and you're a part of our church family, uh, Marysville is about 76, 77,000 people. Uh, there's probably 125 plus thousand people in the greater Everett area within five miles of our church. Um, but Marysville specifically is about 76, 77,000 people. Uh, it's a natural harbor is the the city itself uh, right by the Ignatian Way. Um, so it was very key for trade and uh, among those trade, the North and South trade routes there. Uh, it's also because of that is, is really a thriving city uh, about trade, but also the philosoph- philosophical conversations of that day. So it was a pretty bustling city. Uh, so this is the context that Paul is writing to. Uh, he It's also the context with which he part of his missionary journeys would have been there. Uh, and so we see in this letter, just as a very quick outline, uh, we see three sections is how I would break down this first letter. You see an opening, which is typical of Paul, although there's a nuance to this one. Um, you see him uh, take some time to process through some thanksgiving and encouragement to the, to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, and then he hits the uh, instruction and or- exhortation at the end of the letter. Uh, it's about, a f- it's five chapters long, um, but that's how I would break down this first letter of, of Paul here to the Thessalonians. Um, the opening, Paul, the one nuance about this one is typically you'll see Paul will uh, validate his apostleship. You don't see that in this intro. Uh, you see Paul greet everybody. You see him uh, kind of send a typical opening. Um, but typically what he's also writing to is uh, people, false teachers who uh, he's trying to write to challenge and uh, correct the, the, the false 
teachings that they give. Right. Um, so he's not doing that here in Thess- Thessalonians at this point. Um, so he didn't he didn't mention his apostleship, um, and so it doesn't appear to be there's false teachers. Uh, but he does do a general greeting like normal. Uh, then we shift into the second section, thanksgiving and encouragement. Um, you see the first couple verses there is just this thanks for the faith, love, and hope of uh, the Thessalonians. He admonishes them, uh, and he, he makes these marks, the faith, hope, and love, essentials uh, for followers of Christ. Um, and so they're, they're, if we were to, to, to pare it all down and simplify it from Paul's perspective, especially in this letter, um, you see that this idea of faith, of hope, and a love are three very big um, indicators for uh, a, a Christian population as it is. So I wanted to inter- interject this really quick because it just it made me think about it when you're because I thought that was interesting where you say that Paul doesn't validate his apostleship in Thessalonians. Uh, he doesn't. I didn't read through the whole letter, obviously, just now. But in the opening, <laughs> it's of, how fast you read. Yeah, in the opening <clears throat> of Philippians, which is also another letter where he's not kind of challenging a false teacher. He also does not state that he's an apostle. He just says that it's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So I could be completely wrong because it could be somewhere else in the letter that he yeah. says it, but at least in the opening few sentences, yeah. he is not uh, putting well, that forward. Yeah. And remember in the openings of letters, Paul is is identifying himself, but also coming at, coming at the people from the right authority. Uh, so in the Philippians, he's, he's coming at him from a in essence, I'm your pastor. I love and I right. care about you. Uh, and in other letters, ones that we've talked about, Galatians or whatever, he he validates his apostleship because he's coming against false teachers, and he's coming against the 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 lies that the Christians at the time have begun to believe that are contrary to the gospel Paul preached, and mm-hmm. that is true and indicative. So so yeah, that is a big deal, um, and so it is kind of interesting and nuanced. Um, so we see the, the thanks for the faith, hope, and love that Paul admonishes the Thessalonians in. Uh, we we see Paul talk about this uh, this idea of election. He's confident in the election of the Thessalonians. We see this in chapter one, verse four, all the way through two sixteen. Um, and it's this idea that God, his confidence rests in uh, God's blessings on the missionaries uh, during the mission and the authenticity of the Thessalonians' reception of the gospel and the obedience to the gospel. So that's where Paul is confident in the election of the Thessalonians because they were receptive to the missionaries that came to present the gospel, to establish the church, and their responsiveness, not just the missionaries, but also the gospel itself, leading to obedience. Um, You see Paul take a moment to defend the missionaries during their absence, uh, which is interesting because in in chapter 2, the first 12 verses there, he defends the missionaries being present, that are the missionaries being the ones who are going to the city uh, to present the gospel. Um, he he defends their their mission and their ministry during their presence, uh, but then also there's uh, there's some speculation. Well, why'd they leave? You see this lament at times in this moment, but he he's defending their absence as well. So in essence, he's not he's he's not allowing people to complain or be a little bit upset. He's saying this is why um, he. He does express, and this is like the pastoral concern he has for the city and the people of Thessalonia, Thessalonica. Um, he he has he, he has a little bit of concern about their leaving, the missionaries leaving early. Uh, he has a little bit of concern about their absence, but he also has lament for not being able to return. Uh, and and sometimes it, it can be read, and it's to be clear, he's not writing from a point of criticism. He's writing for a, a perspective of pastoral concern. Um, and so he's not pointing the blame saying, this is the problem. He's saying, man, these things, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sad that they left early. I'm sad that they're not there now. I'm sad that I can't be there. Uh, but nevertheless, the gospel is still important. So then it's out of that concern that we see this pastoral prayer in chapter three, verses 11 to 13. And I'll be honest with you. I think some of the Pauline prayers are my favorite portions of the epistles. Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, and, and they're thought provoking, they're challenging, they're encouraging, uh, and me as a pastor, uh, I, I love them because I I, I want to emulate the same heart Paul had for people. Uh, and so th- I'm going to read this pastoral prayer, uh, just two verses in chapter three. Um, it says this, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. I love the concern. He just, he wants to come back. Um, and this is in the middle of the letter. It's not at the end of the letter. It's not at the beginning of the letter. It's in the middle of the letter. Uh, and it says, and may the Lord, Lord, may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Uh, and so I just love, I love Paul's heart and I, I love that it's his concern for the people of Thessalonica, the, the, the believers at Thessalonica, um, and his desire to revisit the community. Uh, and 
that they will abound in love. It's, it's almost like the same things he would pray for himself. He prays for the people of Thessalonica. And I love it to be blamelessly holy. And this is, I think, important um, because I think holiness, and I think we've talked about this in different moments of podcasts. If not, it's been in Evanized conversations off podcast, but this whole idea of holiness and the the goal that Paul has for his people, this is when he shifts into this next section of intru- instruction and exhortation. He talks about holiness um, but he wants he wants followers of Christ, and I would say it, it, it even translates to today that as followers of Jesus, when Christ returns, which Paul talks about as well in his next section, the goal is to be holy and blameless. The goal is to be ready uh, for his return, for his receiving of his bride, to be ready and 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 presentable to God. And the way that we do that is through holiness and righteousness and obedience. Um, and so he prays from that. He prays for that they would be. And reiterates to them that they would be holy. Uh, and then in this third and final section, starting in chapter four, we see this idea of instruction and exhortation. Uh, the first section of the first four, 12 verses in chapter four is this idea of, of pleasing God uh, and is living in holiness and love. And so this is what it says in chapter four, uh, verses one through 12. Maybe. Oh, yeah, I got it. Sorry. Uh, I was flipping through my screen because I forgot to attach it in my hey, notes. It's all good. Let you a little veil. Yeah. So chapter four, verses one through 12, it says, additionally, then brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus, that just as you've re- you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what God, what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, for this is God's will, your sanctification, in other words, of holiness. And the thing I like about sanctification, if it's a big word for you, it's it's being saved. It's now the process of becoming holy. That's what the word sanctification is. We are all on this journey of sanctification. The moment we say yes to Jesus, it then ensues the process of sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like Christ. Uh, it says that your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all the, these offenses. As we have previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Then he says about brotherly love. So he starts off about the idea of holiness and he speaks directly to the the sexual immorality and the way that we approach each other and our lustful passions and being able to be controlled. Holiness leads to self-control and it's a byproduct of our obedience to Jesus. He talks about brotherly love. In other words, how we love each other in God's family. You don't need me to write because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. And that, I mean, that in and of itself is pretty challenging and thought-provoking. But Paul's admonition is to love, to work, to be diligent, to not live in a manner of drawing attention to yourselves and make a big hoopla about how great you are or your stance on things, but to live quiet lives that honor the Lord and you work with all diligence to provide for yourself so you don't have to be dependent on anybody. Because if you're dependent on someone, you are then held, uh, held not hostage, but you're held back by their expectations by what you owe them. Um, and so there's that tension too uh, about loving and working and towards one another. And so he wants everyone to please God that way. Um, and so he talks about the idea of holiness, of the idea of love. Uh, he exhorts the the uh, people of Thessal- Thessalonica on the second coming uh, in chapter four, verse thirteen to five eleven. Um, and the, the long and the short of it is, and I, I've, I've, I think this is the one passage that I was processing through the most for this podcast is Jesus is coming again. We are told that in Scripture, and as Christians, Paul Paul makes it very clear for the Thessalonians to live in anticipation of that arrival. And there's all sorts of parables Jesus refers to. I can think of the 10 virgins uh, where they're supposed to be anticipating uh, the arrival of the groom uh, and they're supposed to bring extra oil and half of them don't do it. So their their candles burn out or their lanterns burn out. So they're not able to find their way. Uh, the other five virgins who pr- were prepared and ready and anticipated the journey uh, were able to arrive at the house. The door was able to be open, but the other five were lost in, in utter darkness. There's obviously some big parallels and some big symbol, symbolism there. Uh, but the whole idea that Paul is alluding to is that we have to, as Christians, be reminded of 
and live with eternity in mind, with the fact that Jesus is coming again and we are called to be ready because he, he br- brings us out into, in, into a picture where, and he even affirms the Thessalonians, you know, this is happening. You know, it's going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect Christ's arrival. So we need, need to live with anticipation. And I do love some of the, the challenge and the tension he creates, uh, Paul does in regarding like, unless though unless the unless god comes again this is one of the psalms we'll read um but like the watchmen watch over it in vain it's this anticipation and trust that god's going to fulfill what he he does and going to come again um as a second coming and there's different there's different uh doctrines about what that really means and entails and it's not the time to get into in the podcast here um but that's what paul's alluding to he's talking about the second coming of christ to live in anticipation of that uh, he talks about community conduct uh, how we are to live with one another this is where he kind of gets in those last little bullet point exhortations where he's like running out of time and running out of the, the the penmanship to be able to write exactly what he wants to say but so he just does some, does some quick highlights uh, and then he writes at the end there's a prayer that he he finishes up with um he assures and and adds to the previous prayer that we read earlier, this idea of reassurance, uh, and then he wraps up the letter in that capacity. Uh, and so that's kind of our quick shot of what we're going to have. Thessalonians is going to be a quick read, um, but there's so much depth and profoundness to what Paul's writing. Uh, but that's First Thessalonians. Well, and let's see, there's a lot of those themes that get addressed, but clearly there's uh, there's a little bit more that needs to be said because Second Thessalonians appears to have only been written a couple of months after first. So yeah, it is kind of interesting. Uh, we kind of can piece together from hints in the letter that what happened is Paul writes First Thessalonians, people receive it, and then someone else writes a letter pretending to be Paul saying like, hey, by the way, guys, day of the Lord, that's that's here. We're, we're, we're in the end times now. And they're like, what? No. And then so it just throws the whole thing into chaos. Paul apparently gets wind of this. And so he writes the letter of second Thessalonians. So there you go. Uh, the Thessalonian church is going through intense persecution so much so that they thought the day of the Lord and the tribulation associated with that had already arrived. So they're, and we can only, I, I think it's, 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 it can sometimes be easy to kind of blow past and be like, Oh, those silly Thessalonians. Why would they think that you, you do need to take a moment and pause and think about what kind of intense persecution must they have been going to going through to think to themselves, well, this is it. This is clearly the sign of the times. So I think sometimes we think of them as like, I don't know, this isn't people saying like, oh, wow, you're a Christian. That's dumb. And they're like, oh my gosh, this persecution, I can't handle it. And I go, there's clearly like, there's clearly some intense things going on that did would- I, Did I did I pick up on some passive aggressive tones? Some passive, dude. One of my favorite, uh, uh, my buddy Tim and me, we have this ongoing joke of like, I think it's a, it was a vine from back in the day. Oh, so geez. way back. Before. Does anybody remember what vine is? I know. Uh, but it's it, still around. No, it's di- It died. Um, thanks TikTok. Yeah, I know. What are you going to do? Well, it died before. Anyway, sorry, this isn't a social media podcast. <laughs> anyway, the joke of the vine was, um, basically something happens and it's just a guy with his Bible looking at the camera and he goes, is this persecution? <laughs> and so anytime, anything, That's so funny. anytime anything bad happens to us, we're like, is this persecution? Anyway, sorry, listeners, that was just completely off the road. And we're already going late. I'll, I'll, we'll power through Second Thessalonians here. Uh, apparently, so yeah, apparently a small time period between the letters, someone had forged a letter from Paul claiming that the day of the Lord had arrived. So obviously this caused some problems. So in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we see this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So that's our hint there. Uh, <laughs> To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So we don't have, we don't, like Aaron said, we don't really have time to get into all of the kind of eschatology of that, which is a fancy word for the the end times of it. But one day we might, but not today. Yeah. Suffice to to say here that Paul is describing the figure of the Antichrist, um, but also some of this could be theoretically applied towards Nero as well, who will be coming on the scene. Um, You know, that Roman emperor, uh, bottom tier, bottom tier as far as just ruler, bottom tier as far as persecuting Christians. Um, But if you're into neckbeards, Nero has... um, yeah, just look at there's this dude, there's a sculpture I saw the other day that was just like 
just a sculpture of Nero with just a neck beard. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? I mean, maybe it was the fashion of the day. I don't know. But it was just like, you know, get that thing up on your cheeks, man. Listen, he was such a bad emperor that people are just afraid to tell him his, his bad fashion. His so. his cheeks literally rejected him and said, no, <laughs> we will not grow hair. You are condemned forever to be a neck bearded man. No offense to those of you listeners who only have neck beards because, you know, that's that's fine too. That, that, you're not Nero. So. Yeah, you're not Nero. You're yeah. not killing Christians. Uh, so <laughs> at least I hope not. After yeah, hopefully. Um, after that, so Paul also begins to talk about some signs of the end of the age. So this, like we just said, this includes the Antichrist. Um, after this clarification, Paul reminds the church to stand firm in the truth. And so again, take off our modern Western American. Yes, we're gonna have to do that. Yeah, glasses. And put on the glasses of you're in the first century church. Christianity at this point is not an accepted world religion. So the the world does kind of change. And when I say the world, I'm obviously talking about like the the Western world because there's yeah, it, you know, there's stuff that happens in other parts of the world, and sometimes that can get a little bit confusing. But when the emperor of Rome in the 300s declares that Christianity is the official religion of Rome, that changes everything forever. Um, before that, though, you're kind of this under um, – you're a subversive underclass. And subversive might be the wrong word, but you're not you're not protected by the government like we are today. Um, you don't have these freedoms to be able to express your religion. You're literally at any moment, you can have your property taken. Um, when the persecution really starts to ramp up, you can be taken. You can be killed. Um, the, the people who are serving Christ during this time are making extraordinary sacrifices. Yeah. And so when Paul says to stand firm in the truth – He's not just saying, you know, stand firm against whatever's happening right here. He's saying literally stand firm in the face of just incredible persecution. So yep. really, yeah, it's, it's just, I, again, I think it's just important to kind of think through that lens for a little bit and see what he's say, uh, telling them to do. Uh, so this being a short, uh, it's a short letter. So Paul wraps it up by asking the Thessalonians to pray for him and his team, which I do. I, th- I love that personal note of yeah. just... And you get this with a lot of the Pauline letters, where some of them are clearly meant to be like, distribute this around the churches of the area, and so he's not getting like super personal with them. And then some of them are like this, where he's like, hey, by the way, we're moving on to this. Please be praying for us. It's a really cool um, – it just makes Paul a little bit more human, I guess, is a, is a, is a way I would say it. Uh, and then finally, he gives this interesting piece of advice. It says, and this is in chapter three. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of of the of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For when, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace give you all peace and uh, give you his peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. So I'm going to pause there for a second and then we'll talk about the last two verses of because I also think it's interesting. But yeah, um, there's some speculation that what was happening here is because people were like, well, the day of the Lord has come that a good number of people are like, all right, well, I guess this is it. And they just quit Yolo. their job. Yeah, like, all right, whatever. And they're just not doing anything. And so Paul's like, hey, guys, like, you need to, no, you need to work. Like, you need to work hard. Um, so it, it's interesting because it's just so much of Thessalonians is so uh, it cl- so clearly Paul is talking about this specific situation. I wish he'd just come out and say it, like, in the beginning. Hey, I know someone sent a letter. It wasn't from us. You guys are doing this. Cut it out. That sort of thing. But, you know, you kind of have to piece it together a little bit. But, yeah, he's, he's definitely warning them against, like, you know, you need to, you need to be working still. Um, and then finally, Paul ends it with this, which I think is just kind of the – it's the absolute seal of the argument that what happened was is someone lied about being Paul and sent a letter. Because he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. This is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So basically it's like, because we, we we do know from Paul that he dictated his letters and then at the very end, he would sign it for yeah. himself. He would he would put his own personal greeting onto it. And so he's like, hey guys, this is it. This is my signature. If you don't see this, 
It's fake. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you. Love, love, Paul. <laughs> so that's <laughs> just kind of like, I don't know. I just, I just love that that's the way he's doing it. So he's also kind of, he's offering some correction in the sense of like, yeah, what this person said was a lie, but he's also giving, and maybe it, it, I, I might just be thinking of it as more humorous than it actually is, but Paul's just basically putting forward like, hey, this is how you can tell yeah. that when the next thing I send to you, this is how you know it's for real. Yeah. If you don't see this, then it's not me. Yeah. And so- uh, so that wraps up first and second Thessalonians. Uh, and then we're going to be reading through six Psalms this week. So I'm going to hit them very quickly because like we've already said multiple times, this is a longer podcast, but it's been a while since we've had this much book, this many books true, to work through. True. So it's a lot of fun for us to do it. So uh, thanks for sticking with us. We do also have a question that we want to answer as well. So uh, just a little bit more and we're almost done. We're going to read through six Psalms. Like I said, Psalm 126, Psalm 85, Psalm 66, Psalm 84, Psalm 117, and Psalm 87. Um, I think that's six I was afraid I miscounted for a second. Um, Psalm 126 is a community lament that recalls a previous time of God's mercy uh, on his people and, and asks for a fresh show of that very same mercy. Uh, it doesn't specifically give a time or crisis that it's referring to, but it's well suited for a vari- variety of comparable situations. Um, psalm 85 is the next psalm we'll be reading. This is a community lament at a time when God uh, has shown displeasure over his people's unfaithfulness. Uh, and in essence, perhaps you see him by withholding fruitfulness from the land. Uh, the people singing are seeking forgiveness for the whole people, not just themselves, but all of God's people, and then asking God to show the steadfast love and the faithfulness he proclaimed in Exodus 34. And I thought that's really cool because you see the, the, you see the promise and the thing that they hold to. God, this is who you are. Uh, so please... Please show us that part of who you are again um, and the the filter and the faith with which they come through. And because God is righteous, meaning that he's reliable to his promises, um, the psalm then closes with confidence. Um, so that's Psalm 85. Psalm 66 is a thanksgiving psalm for God's uh, answer to prayer of a particular member of God's people. Uh, that's what Psalm 66 is hitting at. Psalm 84, uh, if you're wondering, and maybe this is the first time you listen to these, you're wondering why I'm going out of chronological order, because I'm going in the order we're reading in the reading plan, just so you know. Um, it's not that I don't know how to count, I promise. <laughs> um, psalm 84 is a psalm that celebrates the pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to worship at the temple. Uh, it praises God's special place in Zion, and with this psalm, focusing specifically on the ability to go to worship at Zion, which I think is really, really cool, uh, because it, it, it singing it, should should for the people cultivate delight. Uh, it should open their eyes and hearts uh, to the staggering privilege of being welcomed as a guest in God's own house. Uh, and this psalm, I think, is really incredible um, because that's the heart of it, is it would be sung on the way to Jerusalem where they're going to go and worship Yahweh uh, through sacrifice, through the, the gathering at the temple. And I would say much today for us, the simple practical application is that you and I, as we come to gather in a building called church, um, that I hope that we would be able to have delight and joy and see with open eyes like we are, it's a staggering, and I love the word staggering privilege. I took that from uh, the ESV study Bible, uh, that it's a staggering privilege to be welcomed together into God's family. Um, and, and when we understand that, I hope that we're able to extend it to other people. Um, whether if you're a part of the Grove Church family, I hope that we come with that understanding. It is a privilege to be a part of God's family and to be welcomed into the gathering of the believers. And I hope we get to extend that out to those who would venture into our doors as well. So quick preaching side note, sorry, but I think that's that's a lot of fun to be able to reflect on in Psalm 84. Psalm West 17, quick side note, fun fact, is the shortest chapter in all the Bible. Uh, and it invites all of the nations to praise the Lord. It celebrates his steadfast love and faithfulness that is pledged to Israel, but is intended for all the world. Uh, hence, the Gentiles are actually addressed and included in the word us when Psalm 117 says it. I will say, I will not stand idly by and talk about it being the shortest chapter of the Bible, not just read it on the podcast, because we absolutely have to. So Psalm 117 is... Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for his great steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. See? Well it's done. even shorter than the recap it, you put in the notes. It wasn't <laughs> It wasn't being idle, bro. It was, we've read this before. I read it last year. I, I know, I that's what I'm saying. So, Every year you got to do we it. We don't have to read it again. Anyways, uh, okay, I'm going to do that with the longest psalm next year. 119? Yep. Just power through. <laughs> 150 verses. Anyways, uh, the last psalm we're going to read this week is Psalm 87. Uh, well, again, much like Psalm 84 celebrates Zion as the chosen city of God, uh, but the the tone and the theme it takes this time in this psalm is that it looks forward to all nations, even the enemies of Israel becoming citizens of the city. Uh, so I thought, I, I just think it's incredible to, to reflect on 
ancient poetry like this to be reminded, like they even had a kingdom perspective in what they were writing. And so even the enemies of Israel would become cities of uh, citizens of, of the city of God, the people of God. Um, and how, how challenging that is for us today when we feel oppressed, offended, um, and we have quote unquote enemies, enemies that we would not want to be part of God's family. Um, even in ancient times, they had a right perspective of celebrating mm-hmm. Zion. So it's a city of belonging. So, uh, but those are the Psalms we're going to read all six of them this week. Uh, and I hope that you enjoyed the recaps. There you go. Or the intros. All right. Well, we'll power through really quick. We had one question come in and I do want to get to it just because we're on a little bit of a backlog now. Uh, Which is great. Keep sending on those questions. Absolutely. And I think we can get through this one pretty quick. So it says, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, in Kings and Chronicles, there is a prophecy given to David that there would be a temple and a kingdom that would last forever through David's son. Did at any point it cross David or Solomon's minds that the prophecy wasn't really about Solomon? Uh, to that, I would say, I think, sure. Yeah. Because uh, I, I think... Nope, not at all. I'm just kidding. You see, Because you see all throughout Kings and Chronicles, they refer to themselves as sons of David. Yeah. And so I think there is this understanding that they're a part of that dynasty. Yeah. And so I think that it, even from the language of the time, it wouldn't have been communicated as being limited to Solomon. Um, and I also think one thing to keep in mind with biblical prophecy is not all of it, but a lot of it has multiple fulfillments. So some of it applies to Solomon. Yeah. And then Jesus comes and is the greater Solomon. Yep. It's kind of the way it is. Like Solomon builds a temple, um, Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. So there's no longer need for a temple. Yep. Um, so I think, there, there, and like I said, we're not going to get multiple layers to it. Yeah. We're not going to get too deep into it, but there's a lot of prophecies like that where it gets fulfilled. And then particularly Christ comes and fulfills it to the absolute nth degree. Perfect. So, perfect. The perfect sense of the fulfillment. Yes. Yep. Yeah, right. I agree. Well, listeners, that does it for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that. There is a give button in the upper right-hand corner of the website. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.